Welcome to Going Public, a podcast dedicated to exploring public scholarship and publicly engaged teaching in the humanities. My name is Annie Dwyer, and at the time of this recording, I am the Assistant Program Director of a Mellon Initiative at the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities. The initiative's name is Reimagining the Humanities PhD and Reaching New Publics, Catalyzing Collaboration. Since 2015, two successive Mellon initiatives by this name have supported public scholars at the University of Washington, both faculty developing new graduate seminars in the humanities with public-facing components and doctoral students pursuing public projects in the humanities. The episodes of Going Public consist of interviews with Mellon-supported public scholars after they have launched their projects or taught their public-facing seminars. Please do check out our companion website, which includes faculty fellow syllabi, as well as doctoral student fellow project overviews, artifacts, and other ephemera. The podcast, along with the website, is intended to serve as a resource for scholars interested in developing similar projects and seminars. You can find the Going Public website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash going public. You can also find the link in the description of today's episode. Today's episode, The Politics of Memory, is an interview with Julian Barr, who at the time of this recording is a PhD candidate in geography at the University of Washington. Julian also created Pioneer Square in the Making of Queer Seattle, which is a digital story map and walking tour that chronicles Seattle's queer community from the 1890s to the present in the Pioneer Square neighborhood. Pioneer Square and the Making of Queer Seattle has been supported, among other awards, by a Mellon Summer Fellowship for New Public Projects in the Humanities in the summer of 2017. And our conversation explores, among other things, the affordances and limits of various digital platforms, the ways in which the dissertation form might shift to integrate public scholarship, and how a walking tour can powerfully excavate gentrified spaces subordinated knowledges, and competing memories. Julianne, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a great introduction. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Tell us a little bit about your your project, Julianne. I'd love to hear especially about the origins of the project. Yeah. I mean, so the origins, um, I I didn't really know about it when I started here in 2014, um, but yeah, it had been around for a, a pretty a long time then. It was because it started in about the 90s, like mid 90s, um, which included a lot of different people, like various stages. Um, but primarily where it was sort of left was with uh, Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Larry Knopp. Uh, Michael Brown's at UW Seattle, uh, Larry Knopp at UW Tacoma and their research partners so it just made a lot of sense they were sort of the ones that were keeping it up um as much as possible um up the project that the the northwest lesbian and gay history museum project had started yep yeah yeah yeah. so but the sort of keeping it up was pretty minimal in terms of just like you know they kind of gave the tour sometimes especially in their teaching which was great but it sort of kind of went away and i think largely the reason for that was the whole project sort of kind of died down around i would it seemed like in the mid 2000s they did a really massive oral history project um and it was really great and that was that took a ton of energy um and they sort of created what they wanted to create their primary goal is creating that an archive which is now in uw special collections um and i think for folks like 
uh, Michael Brown and Larry Knopp while the tour was still, you know, great for them. Um, there was just, there was a lot of changes to Pioneer Square in the two, in starting in the nineties, but really in the two thousands through just the process of gentrification that was happening in the neighborhood that still happens where for the most part, the, the places that were, that, that are talked about, um, those buildings don't exist. Um, only one really exists in its sort of original form, but even that it has some alterations to it. Um, so I think that, uh, that sort of took energy out of it because for especially them, you know, they were so used to giving it as a walking tour and seeing all these things. So when those sort of original things go away, you know, it's sort of, it sort of defeated it in a lot of ways uh, for them, which is totally fair. Um, made a lot of sense, right? So then in 2016, though, uh, the American Sociological Association, um, their conference was in Seattle. And um, Dean asked Dr. Michael Brown if he would coordinate um, giving the tour as like a field trip of the conference. Um, and he agreed to do it, um, but he realized it had been a while since he had given it. Um, the book Gay Seattle by Gary Atkins had come out. Had come out. Um, so all that put together, they were like, okay, we have some money and they paid me to update the tour for them to give it as a walking tour, which is great. Uh, and luckily, the ASA has a pre-conference um, and they wanted to do the exact same tour and uh, Michael Brown offered that I would do it. So I did. So it was great. I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was wonderful. Um, and I was like, well, what what else could be done here? Uh, and that's when um, I saw the uh, fellowship from the Simpson Center um, that, you know, would fund um, sort of the time it needed. It just, it needed someone to be able to sit down with it and give it time and think about where could it go next. So then that's when I was like, okay, I think this could be a really cool digital project. I think it'd be, it could live in a digital space. It wouldn't necessarily have to be a walking tour anymore. Um, and you know it does it does the same thing a walking tour does like you're in the space you're in a geographic space you're just not in there physically you're there kind of virtually in a sense but it also solves the major problem of you're not just looking at a building that has nothing to do with that space anymore because you can attach photographs you can do those things and that truly i think changes it so so yeah then i was like okay so I'll, I, I sort of set out this idea of like, okay, I'll make it a digital map, but also think about updating it continuously. And I think that work never really will ever be done. But, um, and the updating really was thinking about who was missing um, from it. And, you know, I think the history, you know, it was, you know, it was, the project was always sort of a lot of uh, gay men, um, even though it was founded by the walking tour itself was founded by a lesbian. Um, so it comes from a lot of different perspectives, but you know, the history itself was very dominated by white gay men. So that was sort of the first thing is how to bring forward 
more stories of people of color um, and women. Some of that required just research, of course. Some of it was already there. It just was like repositioning things and just like bringing it in a different order. So it was also thinking about that. Like, what's the logical order here? And how do you get people to engage with those, the communities that usually get overlooked, you know, right away, it's sort of on the forefront. So it took that on. So I, you know, I think it went great. I like the end result. Um, but ironically, and this was the most unexpected part of the whole thing, was that through the creation of the digital map, there became renewed interest in the actual walking tour, which surprised me because I'm like, well, why would people want to go on this walking tour? But <laughs> I made it into this digital thing. Um, and it was, but then it ended up, I ended up starting to do it. And it was so much fun. And it was weird that it worked out that way, but it ended up being that it was both a standalone thing, but also this like attachment to the actual walking tour. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, yeah. And then I've, you know, given it a lot now. I mean, there's so many beautiful things to pull out about that origin story. I mean, one is just the iterative and collaborative quality of it. I think sometimes when people think about doing scholarship, it's, I'm going to be a lone ranger off to reach wider publics, right? And I think the the story here is is much more of a process and, you know, emerging out of conversations, events more organically um, and building upon people's work, right? And, and it seems like that's a necessary part of the work of becoming more intersectional and, you know, sort of surfacing alternative histories um, that seems part and parcel of the kind of like collaborative ethos of this project which I love. Um, I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to digital public scholarship projects. Um, what are some of the, not just affordances in terms of, you know, digital platforms that you're using, but, you know, opportunities or, you know, challenges that are are particular to, to things like working with Esri, um, mm. which is the platform that you use for your project. I know public scholarship, digital scholarship, there's a lot of overlap. They're not the same. So I want to sort of um, not conflate those two things. But in your case, I think you have a, a digital public scholarship project. So if you could speak to that a little bit, I'd love to love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's, I mean, that's always the biggest challenge, really, um, is because it's always a challenge of like, how much do you want to, how much do you want to sort of invest in that part of the process, I eventually will leave UW um, as I finish. And what comes with that is actually losing access to Ezra's story map. Um, so I and, I, and I sort of knew this in the back of my head. So what I was always hoping for, what has come true, is a better open source story map um, um, uh, like platform. Um, which is um, the one that I'm thinking about is StoryMap.js. So the sort of long-term, and not very long-term, because I'll, I, I want to do it over uh, the summer, is simply transfer the project from an Esri StoryMap to a StoryMap.js. 
um, because it's open access and it's stable now and it's a great platform. It'll look a little different, um, but it works really well. And I really enjoy that. And I think I, and to explain too, like part of the thinking is um, it's not just the access thing. It's also that I can use an open source, you know, open source platform that then anyone can use once they're seeing the map. Because the limitation now is like, if I give the tour, I show someone the map and they want to do this, there's that immediate sort of wall that's built because I use something that costs money and you need access to. So I'm changing it for that reason um, as well. But also, um, I did another project over the summer um, around sort of the history of um, racism and student resistance at UW. And when the question came up, what platform should we use? And I was one of the only people that had experience doing this. I said, well, while we have access to Esri, we should not use Esri. And my reasoning at the po- at that time was because Esri does have a lot of ties to you know, Department of Defense contracts and a side of geography that isn't great. And it felt so contradictory to me that we couldn't make this map over oppression and racism while using a platform that some geographers have, you know, said is is also being used for some problematic behavior. Um, yeah, but I think, again, that that just, but I think that shows just, just how complicated it is and it's 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 the biggest decision you have to make probably and one of the earliest decisions you have to make right and probably before you've had an opportunity to sort of encounter and think through all of these different factors right and then you're well on your way into a project yeah right yeah and you know it's hard so you know it's one of those things i think that comes with just experience and sometimes patience um, I think that's the biggest thing is sometimes you have to have a little bit of patience with it and things will emerge. Like StoryMap.js has grown and is more popular and just looks great now. And I think that's why it's, I feel more comfortable now moving on to it um, than I did before. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that you mentioned patience. And I think that, you know, I think that applies to public scholarship more broadly speaking, right? And and maybe, I, I don't know, this might be an opportunity to kind of push you on that. You raise so many good questions and conundrums that one might think about or think through when doing digital projects. But what about, what about just public scholarship in general, right? Mm. Like what are some of the challenges? Um, what are some of the things that people should be thinking about as they get started with a project, um, whether mm. it's logistical, interpersonal, institutional, yeah, I think <laughs> I think one thing is, you know, and, and this would also claim to this sort of goes back to what I just said too, is whatever if you are using anything, if, if it's digital or not, what's the source of it, and does it somewhat contradict what you're trying to do? You know, um, I think that's a really big thing to consider in public scholarship. So I think that's that's one thing. I think the other thing is. Preparing for, you know, when you get the public public scholarship out there, um, the times that someone that people might want to challenge or push back on it, 
that are legitimate, right? I mean, the one, there's the one side of it that people might, you know, push back because they don't like it for various bad reasons. That's, that's also a challenge. But what I'm, what I'm thinking is there have been times on the walking tour um, where older folks that lived it um, have been a little bit of a challenge sometimes to me. Um, and that's a really interesting dynamic. Uh, and it's not new. It, would, it also happened when Dr. Brown and Dr. Knopp did it. Um, they had the exact same thing where there's, there's, there's always going to be those moments of challenge. Um, and it presents itself. Like what kinds of challenge? People saying, oh, no, yeah. this way or? Yeah, it's, I, I think what it becomes, and this is very much, I think, and I don't think just a history thing, but especially a history public scholarship thing is the politics of memory, you know? Um, an example of that where it's especially happened is there's this moment in uh, in the, the history of Pioneer Square where there was this initiative, um, anti-gay initiative, um, and there were sort of, there were two, there's essentially two organizations campaigning against it that were, you know, um, primarily made of like gays and lesbians. And this is Initiative 13? Yeah, Initiative 13. Okay, which was kind of spearheaded by police. Mm -hmm. And the whole point was to to undo the anti-discrimination ordinances that were already in place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the perfect summary of it. Yeah. And what you start seeing is one side of queer activism was, I think what a lot of people would expect, the sort of post Stonewall, very much in the streets, saying very explicitly, this is an this is a targeted initiative against uh, gays and lesbians. This is discrimination. Um, and that's why you shouldn't, that's why you shouldn't vote for it. Um, and that was the, um, and so that was one side of it. There was another side that was primarily a little bit older, um, gay men primarily. They were mostly business owners. Um, and they took this very different approach where they talked a little bit how it was an anti-gay thing, but they primarily framed it as this initiative is trying to take away your privacy. So they were against it both but took these two very different approaches. If people were living it and they were on in one of these two camps, their feelings are different. Their feelings are that we, that they were on the right, they were doing the right thing. Like they were the ones that made the change happen. In the digital map, um, the photo that I used to represent the Oxenol Park where a lot of this happened, actually a poster made by the side that was not taking the very like queer approach um because i wanted to acknowledge both because again i i mean there's just no way so i thought that was really interesting the many times that's been challenged um and i think that's something to really prepare for it's always going to be a thing um especially if you're younger and you're doing this sort of work um but it's a fun challenge. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about like, for instance, so I think the two sides you were talking about, um, the citizens to retain fair employment, that was the approach kind of led by gay businessmen. And then mm -hmm. Seattle Women Against 13, that was like 
the the approach that was much more that was like more of the kind of like queer politics emerging queer politics that you were sort of identifying um right i guess i'm interested in um like you know as you're having these conversations with people i'm imagining because your 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 map does this and the kind of framing of the story map does this where you're kind of unpacking things like queer where you're unpacking things like intersectionality right like and and that might become like part of the conversation that you're having right um and that's something that this project does so well is i think it uses scholarly knowledge or academic knowledges um and it doesn't do it in a way that's either esoteric or um or simplistic right um and i think that can be a challenge for a lot of uh, academics who are thinking about public scholarship is like, how do I actually, how do I translate academic knowledges for wider publics? Um, and or, I mean, I think the the reverse is true. Like, how do I allow these local knowledges to kind of play into my academic work? And and this project is just so exemplary exemplary in that regard. Um, I don't know. Can you can you talk about you know how how to do that? Right? Like, how do you retain intellectual nuance and also how do you sort of like welcome in these kind of like counter stories? Um, and I think you've already answered the second question a little bit, right? Um, it, it seems like the, uh, like dialogue is really important. Um, the kind of like oral history process is really important. But um, but yeah, I guess if you just have any additional thoughts on that, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I think I, I think I think that's the biggest challenge, right? It's like communicating. I think a lot of times it's like the big things to communicate you know, the, the big picture sort of things, right? Um, so for like this project, one of the biggest things is acknowledging a history that exists way before the Stonewall riots. And that's, that's always been important to me throughout all my work is that it's the history before that I'm so interested in. That's not to dismiss the history that happens afterwards because a lot happens afterwards. The other big picture things are like the police payoff system, thinking about policing. And that was, it's not only an important part of the story, but I made sure it was very much highlighted because it just connects back to now. It's the same exact, very similar issues where police go unaccountable, it's unaccountable and they do bad things. It, it seems to work really well for such a, wide variety of audiences you know i've had undergrads i've had grads i've had people that you know were in the community that were not in the community but are queer um high schoolers like the the vast sort of age and experiences that have been on the tour that have been able to engage with it and you know that that's really good because I think that's a sign of like it's working and that's what I've always looked for. Like I'm just thinking a lot of the a lot of the um, kind of like wonderful historical texture and details of your project have, have come through in our conversation. But gosh, uh, as we as we come to the end here, I'm just wondering if we can make space to just let you talk about some of your favorite sites um, and some of your favorite stories that you happened upon. I think for me. You know, it's some of my favorite things that have really come out of it um, that took new light that I think have inspired other ideas that I have are things like um, the the steam and bathhouse is probably one of those locations that uh, took me in very different directions. Um, 
where I, you know, it, it's a bathhouse, you know, that was around for a really long time, primarily by gay men, but having the intentional, intentional sort of moment to look into it, I was able to find a map, a hand-drawn map of what it looked on the inside, um, which was such a cool find. And it was so interesting because, you know, it's a, it's a weird system bathhouses where you have to sort of explain to, I would say an audience that mostly, most of the time does not know what a bathhouse is. Um, they just don't know. Um, even younger queer folks are like, a, a what? Um, so you have to explain it. And then, and so having that map where I was like, okay, you see these little, these little squares, these are all little rooms <laughs> when you went in and you had sex in. Um, it just adds so much to it. You know, you were never able to do that on the tour. Um, you'd always have to verbally explain it. And in the research of that, I found out that they had a ladies night and it's still one of my, it's still one of the funniest stories. That's amazing. Right. Cause I, and I would have never, it's, it was such a buried archival thing that when I eventually found it, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and I would have, and that those, those are the sort of stories that are really wonderful, right? It's a different side to a space that like, you'd only assume was for gay men. In fact, it wasn't. And uh, women are all, lesbian women are always looked over in that sort of research because it's, it's just assumed like lesbians I, I guess only have sex in their homes um, when in fact like they do things that gay men do it just looks very different and I think that's a really that's that's a really happy moment for me is like bringing that out in one single space is really wonderful but it also just shows like it's so fun it is so much fun to just have the time to go into an archive and you sort of explore these things and you find these little accidental things. Like the, it was literally a piece of paper. It was someone writing down, it, it was one a reporter that was interviewing one of the workers at the bathhouse and he was like angry about the women and he starts talking about this woman's night. And that's how I found it from there. That's incredible. Right, wow. just a handwritten sort of yeah almost transcript right okay. um it, it's it, it wasn't labeled so it was just like oh this is great and if your public scholarship can do that and really get you into surprising finds that's that's super satisfying and that's a good thing but i'm just wondering you know if you would like to speak a little bit more to or at all to how this has shaped your dissertation work because i think we're always looking for examples of alternative dissertations and ways in which public scholarship can surface in dissertation work or be a recognizable part of dissertation work. And I think you actually offer us an example of that. So I think it'd be really helpful for people to hear more about it. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, it was a struggle. Um, <laughs> so at first it was because the dissertation for context is about um, lesbian and queer women in Seattle from about 1930 to about 1980. And Pioneer Square is a big, big part of that. But it's not all, it's not just that. And I think the struggle for me was I couldn't find a place in the dissertation research for it at first. It didn't feel great that I was really proud of this and I'm still extremely proud of it. And at the end of the day, I'll be quite honest, 
I think I'll always be more proud of this work than I will be of the dissertation. Um, so then I was like, well, then why is it so small of part of that? Like, that's so unfortunate, but it's sort of the way that these things are designed. You know, you're not, it's just not designed to be supportive of this. And that's, that's a problem. So I really wanted to do, and it came finally into fruition. I really wanted to do a three paper dissertation um, where it's three papers based on the same doctoral research sort of made ready for journal publication. And so that makes it that one of my papers is essentially about this tour and about this public scholarship. And then two of the papers are about the dissertation research. And that feels That's way weird. more balanced. Yeah. And it makes it like finally be acknowledged in a real way. Um, so I just think, you know, it's it's a recognition of that labor. It's a recognition that it's important. And if it's important to you, you deserve it to be part of that that final thing. Um, and I think that that I mean I think that doesn't that extends beyond grad students too. I don't you know, I think it extends to faculty too. Why is it not, you know, why is it not of the same weight that any publication would be? I I personally think I have reached more people with this tour than I'm ever going to reach if it was in an academic journal. <laughs> I just feel I do. I don't know. I just, I, it's pretty hard for me not to argue that, you know? Um, and what does that mean? You know, is that not impact? Like, I don't know. So I think, yeah, I, I just think it takes a little bit of recognition and like valuing it. Well, I know that that's how I see your project is, is something that just is inspiring and, and that makes me want to do something as cool as what you have produced, um, which I never will, which is fine. But um, but still, it's it's just really exemplary work, and um, yeah, I'm just so grateful that you were able to talk with me about it today. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. This episode of Going Public was made possible with help from the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities staff particularly C.R. Grimmer, who is also the communications manager at the Simpson Center, our sound editor, Oliver Gordon, and of course, support from the Mellon Foundation. The Mellon Initiative at the Simpson Center, reimagining the humanities PhD and reaching new publics, catalyzing collaboration, was led by Kathleen Woodward, director of the Mellon Initiative, director of the Simpson Center, and UW professor of English, Rachel Artiaga, assistant director of the Simpson Center and associate program director of the Mellon Initiative, and myself, Annie Dwyer, Assistant Program Director of the Mellon Initiative. We hope you check out additional episodes of Going Public on our website at www.simpsoncenter.org slash goingpublic and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>